Welcome to episode 57 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest served in the National Guard during Desert Storm. She was actually one of the first people to be deployed for Desert Storm and has quite an interesting story. Covered a lot of her story in the interview, but there's more to share, obviously. But I really loved getting a chance to hear about what it was like to be part of Desert Storm, what it was like to be in the early deployment of Desert Storm, and what it was like to be there for the whole time. So this is another great episode and let's dive right in. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Angela joined the... North Dakota Army National Guard in 1986 at the age of 17. She deployed for Desert Storm in September of 1990 to March of 1991. Shortly after returning home from her deployment, she moved to Athens, Ohio, and continued to serve through the Ohio National Guard. Following 9-11, she served on several active duty tours, assisting with mobilizing Army Guard soldiers. Her last year and a half of service, she served as the Assistant State Retention NCO for the Ohio Army National Guard and retired as a Sergeant First Class with over 21 years of service in 2008. Angela is an advocate for women veterans and is currently the chair for the Ohio Women Veteran Advisory Committee, which she has been a member of for 11 years. The committee plans and executes one of the largest women veteran conferences in the United States. It is held biannually and will take place again in 2021. She also serves on the Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame Executive Committee, which reviews over 120 packets annually to select up to 20 veterans for the Hall of Fame. Angela recently testified before the Ohio Senate in support of Senate Bill 311, which will designate June 12th as Women Veterans Day in Ohio. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to hear your story. Good morning. Thank you so much. So let's dive in with why did you decide to join the military? I grew up on the Spirit Lake Nation, which is Indian Reservation in North Dakota, and I wanted to figure out a way to pay for college. And for some crazy reason, I was a junior in high school, and I decided that I was going to join the National Guard. So I was 17, so I went and found a recruiter. I brought him out to my parents' house, and they signed for me, and I went to basic training the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I just really joined because I wanted a way to pay for college. So, And that was in 1986. It's really shocking because I didn't even know that people did that, but I've had, you're the third person that has joined when they were 17 and joined the National Guard. I think one or both of them, I can't remember, went right after they graduated high school. Maybe I've done four people because I feel like, and I know someone else did the junior to senior year. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it was it was interesting. That's for sure. I'd never been out of the really the quad state area, you know, so North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wyoming, you know, I'd been to Nebraska once and I've been to Canada, Manitoba, you know, to Winnipeg, but I'd never really been anywhere else. So yeah, my first plane ride, you know, all that fun stuff. 17 youngest person in my basic training class. So that was, it was interesting. Basic 
is like 10-ish weeks. Is that Back right? Then it was eight weeks. Okay. Yeah, it was and then did, I'm guessing you didn't have time to go to tech school between yeah. in the summer. Okay. Nope. And uh, so then I, so basically when I joined, it was called a split option. So I was able to do the basic training the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And then once I graduated, then I was supposed to go to AIT, Advanced Individual Training for the Army. So when I originally joined, uh, because like I said, this is in 1986, so there was no conflicts going on or anything really that the Guard was involved in. And so I was like, well, they had an enlistment bonus for a cook. And I thought, oh, I'll take that. And then when I came back from basic training, I realized that was a grave error on my part. After doing KP and seeing what those cooks did, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to do that. I asked to reclass and they said no because I had a bonus. And the only way I could reclass is if I went active. Well, they wouldn't let me go active army because they'd paid for my basic training. You know, those inter-service transfers, they're really... Usually with the guard and stuff, they really frown on that because the guard incurs the cost and they don't get reimbursed by the branch that picks you up. But they wouldn't let me go army. So I thought, maybe I should join the Marines. So I was getting ready to do that and that didn't work out. So I got back in the guard. I had a conditional release and I got back in the guard and actually did not go to my AIT until the fall of, gosh, 88. Yes. So late in 88, I went to Fort Lee, Virginia. And at that time, then I was able to reclass as a 77 Foxtrot, which now it's a 92 Fox, but that was petroleum supply. And so I did that. And when I came back, you know, I was basically in the North Dakota Army National Guard. We trained for several years. We went out to Camp Pendleton, California, because I was assigned to a water battalion. And back then, there weren't really very many active water units. They, it was a guard and reserve mission more so if, as far as water storage companies and water distribution, tactical water distribution detachment, which is what I was in. So we used the same equipment as fuel. So that's why they sent us to that school. But we also learned how to test and sample and all that stuff and drive the vehicles for fuel. So I did that. And we had went out to Camp Pendleton, as I said, two years in a row for annual training. And we're training up in the hills at Camp Pendleton. And then lo and behold, in 1990, you know, um, August 2nd, I think it was the day when uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait. So we were pretty much put on alert shortly thereafter. And we were just kind of like, what? You know, I mean, it had been 30 some years since the North Dakota Guard had been called up, you know, and I was young, you know, my early 20s. And I wasn't really I was like, holy cow. But you know, it is what it is. And we didn't know what to expect, you know. But my detachment was really small. I think it was 24 people, I believe. We had three E6s, no officer assigned, which is odd. And we got mobilized right away. And they sent us to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. And then once we got there, a couple of the companies in our battalion then came down as well. But our detachment was the first to leave. And it was very unexpected because we're a tactical water distribution unit as a forward water point. So it has the two 20,000 gallon bags and then the 10 mile hose line, which is in 500 foot sections. So, I mean, it, it's a forward water point, you know, so they sent us first. It was, it was crazy. Like we, we were, we went so fast that like the governor and all the dignitaries were supposed to come to see all of us. And we left before they could even come see us, you know, so it was just, we were the actual first unit to leave Fort McCoy, Wisconsin for that mobilization. So we get over there and, you know, I, I don't know. Are we on that part yet? I'm sorry. 
So you went from being in the guard and being at peace to like Saddam started to invade Kuwait and they were like, all right, it's time to go. And you were like, what? Yes, we were all kind of like, what is going on? And I was actually working, now they call it ADOS, um, but at that time um, I was on temporary orders and I was working for the North Dakota Military Academy. And I worked personnel type stuff and, you know, ammunition ordering. We had a 12 Bravo and 12 Charlie Combat Engineer School in North Dakota, and they still have a big one there as well, same place. I work admin support and stuff like that, payroll and, you know, like I said, ordering the ammunition for the demolitions and stuff like that. So I was really, I was on orders anyway, but I just was like, what? You know, yeah, it was kind of, it was pretty shocking, I think, to a lot of people because the Guard hadn't had a massive call-up federally for a long time. Right. So it was interesting. Yeah, that would be, especially to be in the like first wave, because I think a lot of times when people think about who deploys first, they think of active duty. Correct. And they don't think about like the National Guard. And like you guys had such a unique specialty, they needed you, and that's why yeah. they called you up. Correct. So what was it like to head overseas? Did you have any like, so you went to Fort McCoy, did you do training like combat skills type training or? We didn't really have much time. We trained on the chemical alarm and, you know, we didn't even qualify or anything back then. We didn't do anything like that. You know, as far as the, you know, the mobilization training, um, you know, we took some classes. We were only there like, I want to say no more than two weeks, I think. I can't remember the exact date, but it was not that long. And, you know, and then we headed over and we actually were fortunate because we had two five-ton trucks and then three pickup trucks, the 1008,009 wheel diesels, pickup trucks that they used, that the Army used to have. And so when we went to a lot of Volk Field in Wisconsin, and we flew with our vehicles, which we were very fortunate because most people did not. So we flew C-141 and we sat in the jump seats. You know, there was no insert or anything, you know, so was, we were old school. Stopped in uh, Spain to refuel. And that was probably the last good meal I had until I don't know when, because <laughs> we were able to eat at the defect there. And then we headed over. And when we got there, we landed at the airport in, in Dahran, in that area or whatever. But it was crazy because, like, there was, like, people everywhere just laying around in the sand, no shade. We were just, like, what are we doing? And like I said, we were fortunate that we had our vehicles because most people did not have vehicles. And there, a lot of their stuff was on ships. So our equipment, which consisted of a lot of equipment, I want to say probably at least five or six uh, flatbed trailers full of equipment, you know, because we had 600 gallon per minute pumps. I mean, it was it was a lot. It's a lot to transport one of those units as far as transportation goes. Anyway, we get there and we're just kind of like trying to find shade. And that was the first time I ever saw an air conditioned tent. There was an Air Force unit that was there, and I don't know—I don't know if they were processing people in. But this lady comes up to us and she goes, "Well, you guys want to come in our tent?" And we're looking at her like, "Really? I mean, you know, no, we're not going in that. It's be hot. It's hot out here. Why would we go in there?" And she goes, "No, come here." And she opened the door, and there was like, "Whoosh!" This air conditioning. We're like, "What? Oh my gosh!" So she let us kind of hang out in there with her off and on throughout the day. So that was nice. Out of my unit, we had six females and the rest were males. And like I said, we had three E6s, but 
the thing that was weird was we all kind of grew up together. So we we're just a bunch of kids. It was like the Brady Bunch going to war. We, you know, and so we had some issues as far as like kind of sibling rivalry. And, you know, it was the guys against the girls. You know, at one point, we even had to put up our own GP medium tent. And these were the old style with the ridge pole. I don't know if you ever saw those, those great big heavy ridge poles because the guys were fussing and they were being jerks and they wouldn't help us. So it's pretty hard to put up a GP medium tent with six females. But luckily, we all kind of grew up farming, ranching, you know, rural kids, you know, so we were not afraid of hard work and the type of unit that our unit was, it was very much physical labor, you know, connecting those hose lines, you know, doing all that stuff. So yeah, but that was interesting. So um, it was a time, like I said, I, I don't keep in touch with any of the guys other than my one cousin. I had a little cousin that was with us. I talked to him, but it, it made some animosity, you know, because, you know, anytime there was rough, dirty jobs, you know, they they would whine and complain. And our sergeant that was in charge of us would make us do it. He would just, you know, he was buddies with that, you know. So it was it was pretty stinky. Yeah. So it was pretty challenging. There, there were only six of you women. And then because there were a bunch of dirty jobs that needed to be done and they fell on you guys. So that yeah. must have been really hard. It was annoying. And when we first got there, of course, we were there in September of 90 and women weren't allowed to drive. So I was one of the licensed drivers for the five ton. And so I couldn't drive my own vehicle. You know, fortunately, at some point then the kingdom of Saudi Arabia said all military service women from all these countries that are here are declared as men so we could drive. One thing that was fortunate because we did have the vehicles and our sergeant was pretty much a go-getter. He went and found stuff for us to do instead of just sitting. There was this holding place called Cement City that was so nasty. It was an old abandoned cement plant and they had hundreds of tents, you know, sat up, you know, set up. And you went there for like your acclimation because it was hard to get used to that temperature and everything. But it was it was awful. It was just off, you know, the tents, you'd stand in line for the tea rats, you know, which were the green eggs that they really talk about their green, just yucky food, but mostly MREs. He found us a job though. So none of us, since we were tactical water distribution, we were not certified on using the ROPUs, the reverse osmosis water purification. So he found out that there was a group of them out on half moon day and they were providing training to any units that wanted to learn how to purify water. So as if you, as long as you were you know, in a water battalion. So we packed up our stuff and took off. And so the first 20 some days, 25 days, we stayed on the Persian Gulf with our tent on the Gulf, right next to where there one of the president's palaces was, or the king's palaces was down the road a ways, but it was beautiful. And we learned how to purify salt water. That was kind of cool. And then, yeah, we moved out into the desert and, you know, didn't look back. I uh, worked on a rope when I was in the Air Force, so oh, I know exactly okay. what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I mean, I was an officer in the Civil Engineer Squadron, so I wasn't like one of the troops, but I know exactly what you're talking about because we went to Florida and we trained on like being at war and they did the same thing. They took the ocean water and purified it and it was so cool to watch. And so that's pretty cool to hear about like doing that. When I went to Manus for on my way to Afghanistan and saw like all the bear base equipment that I've been training on, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever just because it was like all the stuff that I was training and learning was being put into practice in Manus, which was in Kyrgyzstan on the way to Afghanistan. And then obviously when we were at the FOB and got to see all that stuff. So that's kind of 
That's cool. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So the parts per million of the salt in the Persian Gulf is so much higher than anywhere else. Like when you would go out there and you could, you would float. Like if you went into the water, you would float. And in order for us to get down to like get starfish or anything like that, you'd have to push the other person down. You didn't even need a flotation device really. Because it was so, so, boy, it made you so buoyant. And we had to run it through the rope view twice. And you know how powerful those filters are, you know, and the brine that came out was absolutely pure white. It looked just like milk, you know, the first go. The second go, it wasn't as bad. But, you know, we went through filters like crazy because, you know, you can only run through so much with those filters. And the salt was just, it was so much. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And water is so important when you're overseas, and especially clean water. I know in Afghanistan, they just had to have pallets of water bottles because I think that was just an easier way for them to distribute. It is. I felt bad for once we ended up setting up at a bag farm and stuff or when we were delivering water, they would bring it to us on these smifties. Before we were with a bag farm, we were remotely at this place called Camp Pulaski and it was out in the middle. It was between Daharan and KKMC, King Khalid Military City. So it was out in the middle of nowhere and it was kind of a staging area. And so the people at the port would send up water to us because we had the two 20,000 gallon bags because we were the four water point. And it would come in on these smifties, which are 5,000 gallons on a flatbed. And so it looks like just a big, long, full wave waterbed. And they would bring it up to us and then we would distribute it. So the units would come and get water from us. But I have to say, we didn't drink our own water because there was so much chlorine in there. And it would, you know, that has an adverse uh, effect on your inter- internal system if you're not used to it. So I felt bad for those people. They were drinking that stuff. You know, we we were lucky because we were at a supply area. So they would, you know, make sure that we had bottled water. Yeah. Had, so. Well, and add that with eating MREs, which also oh, aren't like. Yeah. yeah. So, because I was just thinking like the times that I had to eat like pretty much straight MREs. Yes. Never was good for my digestion. No, it's, it's just not. No. So how long were you in, were you in Kuwait or Sa- you were in Saudi, right? We so were in Saudi and we pretty much stayed in Saudi the whole time. When the air war started, we had actually like two weeks before the air war started, we moved up to King Khalid military city and were staged there. And then that's where they brought all the rest of our equipment. So like I said, we had six, 600 gallons per minute pumps, you know, multiple um, flanking boxes, which is what they call, which the 500 foot sections are folded up, you know, the compressed hose line. So it was all there before we got there. But when we got up there, we found out that, yeah, um, we kind of, there was a lot of cannibalizing of equipment going on by service people. I mean, different branches, who knows who did it, but I'll never forget. We get up there and one of our 600 gallon per minute pumps had been unbolted from the trailer and just pushed off into the sand and the trailer was gone. And it was like, seriously. So this is like a very expensive piece of equipment, but they just wanted the trailer. So they just unbolted it and shoved it into the, and it was brand new. This equipment was brand new. It had never been used before. So then the, when the air war started, then we moved forward up to Log Base Charlie, which was the furthest Log Base North. We were attached to the 18th Airborne Corps up where, where the French were, so um, by Rafa. So our mission was we were there with a water storage company, and then we were to run a hose line. There was a chemical unit, a military hospital unit, and a laundry and bath unit all within a, a circular area. We had our own secured perimeter, but they weren't that far away. So what we did, we were the only unit to actually run a hose line there. 
because it's pretty hard to secure a hose line because those are collapsible and all it takes is a syringe to contaminate someone's water, you know, or a way to get it apart. And, you know, it's just, it's just not a good, good situation and not in a hostile area. So, but we were able to run, it was like maybe two or three mile, it was a loop. So we ran water to them and then that way they could get it on demand in those areas where they really needed it. But like I said, where we were at, it was so far north and the Iraqis that were closer to us had been cut off from supplies for several weeks. So they were very happy to give up and get some food and water in our area. So, you know, once they started surrendering and coming our way because they knew we were there, you know, that big 18th Airborne Corps group, you know, they were just coming in droves. So you would see the white buses just going by, you know, all the time with, you know, loads of Iraqis that were, you know, had surrendered. So we didn't have any issues like that. Our biggest issue there was the, um, the Scud attacks. So they would fly over us a lot. And, you know, that was the scariest part. You know, we spent a lot of time in Mop 4, you know, with the full chemical suits on and but I think the worst part was was when they had blown up a chemical plant not too far from us. And because it's so flat and the wind was blowing and all that stuff and our alarms kept going off for like four days. And finally, like around the middle of day three, they're like, you know, it's not really that much. So it's not going to hurt you. They must last words, you know. So, I mean, we had some people, you know, you know, I'm registered with the Gulf War Registry. You know, my husband is, he was over there too. And, you know, so it's just, it's just unfortunate the way that all turns out and the way that they try to act, you know, unfortunately, like nothing happened. So that's, I think that's the worst part for Gulf War veterans is because people are like, you're only there like months, you know, it was not that big of a deal. Well, when you're exposed to chemicals and yeah, kind of a big deal. So. Well, and I just, in the last 20 minutes, have learned so much about the Gulf War that I had no idea, like, even happened because I I was really young when it happened. Yeah. I was in kindergarten, so. <laughs> yeah, I was born. I was even born when you enlisted, so. Nice. But I don't really know a lot about it because people don't talk about it at all and like when they do they say oh it was just that's all I knew like it was really short it didn't last very long and so I didn't know when you were talking about mop gear which is like the whole chemical suit with the gas mask and everything when I was training like doing exercises back at my first duty assignment we would always get in mop gear and I was like I don't understand why we're doing this but now that you talk about it I'm like oh because that's what that war was focused on. And so that was incorporated into our training. And so I, cause I brought my mop gear to Afghanistan, but it was under my bed the whole time. Like I never did anything with it. And so, so that's really interesting how much that war affected the culture of the military. So that even in 2000, I guess that was 2007, 2008, we were still training, getting in mop gear, waiting for the all clear, doing all the different levels. It was very scary, you know, and, and the universal symbol, you know, obviously, you know, the gas, 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 and then, but they would do the three, the three horn honks. So if you heard a horn honk, everybody was just like, you know, and you carried your mop gear with you all the time. You had it with you all the time. You didn't go anywhere without it because, you know, those scud missiles would go off and they would, you know, they would, you know, do the horn honking. And yeah, it was, it was 
was scary, you know, and then, you know, of course they couldn't aim very well, you know, and they would hit things and, you know, that was just dumb luck that they hit Cobar Towers that time. I mean, right. they couldn't aim very well. Yeah. They still have that problem. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it was, it was, yeah, that, I think that was the worst part, honestly. That and the fighting with the men in our unit. I say boys because we were all kids, you know, it was, but you know what? It was, it was wonderful because the six of us have reconnected. We have our own little private uh, Facebook group and we're trying to get a reunion together and um, with just the six of us. That is one of the hard parts, I think, about deploying that people don't understand is that the people that you deploy with, sometimes there can be some dynamics yes. behind the scene that yeah. that was one of the biggest traumas that I had to overcome because there are people on my team who betrayed us and really hurt. Yeah. And it's and that's just as hard to deal with, I think, as the combat because you're supposed to have those people are supposed to be your, we would say wingmen, but they're your battle buddy. And then they're the ones you have to protect yourself from. Correct. And so, yeah. And it was, it was unfortunate, you know, and, you know, making sure, you know, that, you know, especially as a female, you know, you weren't going anywhere by yourself. And even some of the males, you know, it's just, it's just, people are weird, you know, like sometimes, you know, not everybody has your best interests at heart. And like you said, it's, it's very disheartening when it's your own people that are causing problems. You know, that's, you know, that's pretty scary. So I guess we kind of touched on the challenge of being over there a little bit like the mop gear and the mental, I mean, they were trying to kill you. That's what they're, that's what they were trying to do. And that's really, that's one trauma. But then you also had the trauma with the people on your team. When you got home, how did you transition back? I was wondering like the honking horns, did that like trigger anything? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and it was so quiet. You know, because, you know, you know how it is. There's generators running 24-7. You know, how else are you going to have electricity, you know, or, or heat or anything like that? It was weird. Like, and then you come back and you almost kind of miss it because it's a controlled environment and it's kind of strange. But you know what's expected and you have your tasks that you do every day and you have, you know, a set whatever. And then to come home and just be able to do what you wanted to do. That was hard. And I didn't sleep well, like. For the first month or so because number one it was too quiet and you know and number two i i didn't really have anybody to talk to because we didn't have reintegration back then like they do now you know where you know they spend a certain amount of time for the garden i know the guard anyway where they go and they they go to the you know the deep mob site and you know they're there and they're going through all this training and outbreathings and everything when we got back we actually were one of the first units to get to come back because we got picked to be in this ticker tape parade because we were one of the first units to go over. And so they picked a certain amount of us. So there was us, there was a Navy SEAL team, there was people from the Big Red One at Port Riley, Kansas, and there was somebody else, and I can't remember the other unit, but there was just a small group of us. And this time we flew back on C-141 again, but it had the insert in there and we did not bring our equipment. So that all came back later on on a ship. We came back and we developed a fuel leak of some type. So they stopped at Maureen Air Force Base, which is up in Limestone, Maine, which is no longer there. And we sat there for like five or six hours while they dug a plane out of the snowbank to uh, get us, you know, to wherever. Well, we obviously missed everything. So they ended up, we flew to Kansas City, Missouri, I believe. They put us up in a hotel and that was weird. 
because, you know, you hadn't been, <laughs> we had running water, we had a bed, you know, I have pictures of, uh, of my friend and I, we were just kind of, and they put us two to a room. So you had your own like real bed and, you know, you hadn't seen one in a long time. So it was so weird, you know, it was just different. We dropped those folks off and then went to Fort Riley, Kansas, dropped them off. And then we went to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin for demobing. And like I said, we were only there like maybe two or three days at the most. It was very quick. I was the very first person to go through legal and I have a scrapbook, but it's kind of cool. But I, this lady who was the jag that was there, she took a picture of me and because I was the very first person to go through the legal section as far as the demobbing and we were the first group that left. So she took a picture of me and she mailed it to me, to my house. Like later on, I got this card from her and it was really kind of cool. But I think North Dakota, the governor then, he sent a C-130. The Happy Hooligans are our Air National Guard in North Dakota. He sent a C-130 and it had an insert inside of it that was just unbelievable. It was like the lap of luxury. And we all fit in there. So he sent the plane to come get us and take us home so we didn't have to ride buses from Fort McCoy to North Dakota. And so that was really awesome. I think they felt bad because they didn't get to come see us off. So they didn't do that for anybody else. Everybody else came home on buses. But yeah, we went down on buses to Fort McCoy. But so it was interesting. It was really interesting. And how long were you gone from when you mobilized to when you got home? It was only like six and a half months, seven months total, maybe. Probably seven months. But when you were over there, you guys didn't know, like... Like when I no. went, I knew it was going to be gone from this date to yeah. approximately this date. And so yeah. I knew. When- no, we did not know. So the first initial orders were for, I think they were for six months. And then before that was the, when we first got put mobilized and then we went to Fort McCoy, the first orders, I believe, said six months. And then they changed them to 365 days. And then because some people ended up staying longer, you know, there was, you know, all the challenges with all the equipment, you know, they got us there so fast and there was so much equipment and we left so much behind because with water, it's hard to purify that stuff once it's been in that kind of situation. And so I think they left a lot of it there and destroyed it because you have different parasites and organisms and, you know, it's a different part of the country, you know, out in the middle of there, it was kind of nasty, you know, so I don't think they brought any of that stuff home. They brought the pumps home, but they didn't bring like the bags or the hose line. So that stuff all stayed there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And just the quick response. I've talked to more people who've gone at the early stages of the Gulf War than the Iraq War or even Afghanistan. I think the Iraq War, they were a little bit more prepared. She talked about being in Kuwait for a few months before the invasion and how they were like there and they were waiting and they were waiting and then they finally went in. And so, but I haven't talked to anyone about how quickly they got to Afghanistan. For the initial, that would really be one of my best friends from here from Ohio. So during when we did go in for the second Gulf War piece, you know, Ohio is a huge guard state. So and they, you know, so they'll say large, medium or small states as far as population. So Ohio is considered a large state because of the population percentage wise or, you know, for the guard versus what our state population is. And Ohio very much invested in their National Guard. And You know, I'm retired. I retired in 2008. I, you know, I have nothing to gain by saying this, but it's one of the best states, in my opinion, because, you know, our readiness was always such an important thing. And so when anything, whenever anything happens, you know, other states will come to Ohio and ask for help. 
you know, like they just, but, and a lot of times they want Ohio troops because, you know, there are certain states that have good reputations, you know, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota. And I'm just talking on this side because I'm more familiar with this region, you know, Kentucky, you know, West Virginia, you know, there's certain states that are, you know, really, really well prepared and readiness is just huge. And their state is very supportive. When that second go around went, then I was assigned to a 73rd troop command, which is, you know, a command and control. And we had the MP, MP units and stuff like that. So when our MPs, they went right away, you know, so they went and my, one of my best friends was in that unit and she was a master, she ended up getting promoted to master sergeant, but they went in and cleared that airport. So they were the first ones in there. And she said it was horrible, you know, and you know, they, they got like some of the first hits by the IEDs, you know, the roadside things too. So they were fortunate, very minimal casualties. The one that they did have, actually there was two, happened to me because of a boat. Uh, they fell overboard and um, on the Tigris River and um, two of the MPs drowned. Um, one fell overboard and the sergeant went in after him, you know, and then they both, they had all that stuff on. And yeah, so that was one of the casualties, two of the casualties that they had. But yeah, so it was way different. And I felt bad for her when she came back because, you know, she was in an MP company. So, you know, they were going up and down the road all the time, you know, security. And, you know, she had a hard time. And I know several people who have talked about it, you know, we're in Columbus, Ohio, you know, so we have the big outer loop of 270 that circles the city and the traffic is crazy. And she just had a really hard time being on the freeway because she didn't want to get boxed in, you know, because that was one of their tactics, tactics is to box in, you know, you know, that was, I think, difficult for her. I think that one of the hardest parts of coming home from a deployment is things that are safe in a civilian are not. And even someone talked about when they came home and they, the airport baggage claim, the alarm started going off and he went in panic mode because that's the sound that means incoming. And when he talked about that, I was, when I came home, I felt like this like numb feeling, like my body couldn't process what was going on. So I just kind of ignored everything because it was too much stimulation. And I think that was like my coping method. But then like once you're driving, like, you have to drive to go to work or you, and you can't. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense why so many people have PTSD and all these problems because it's really hard. And because we don't talk about it and women are the worst. You know, we, we talk are. about, there's a campaign called the invisible veteran or women are not invisible or something like that. And our state is looking at getting involved with it, but it's hard to get women to identify, you know, in Ohio in 2015, we knew about 65,000 women veterans in Ohio, you know, by 2017, no, actually by this year. So 2019, now we're aware that there's more than 67,000, but, you know, to grow only that many, you know, officially is scary because you know, there's a lot more, but it's hard getting them to identify. And that's one of the things that we found with our women veteran conferences is, you know, especially, you know, it was so hard trying to find World War II veterans when I first got involved with this group with the Women Veterans Advisory Committee, and they were told they weren't veterans, you know, Vietnam veterans who were told they weren't veterans, Korean veterans who were told they weren't, you know, and, and trying to identify them. And, you know, it's it's hard. And one of the best stories, if you get a chance, her name is uh, Bobby Mershon, and she happens to be in our Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame. And her story is online, but if you Google her, she was a nurse in Vietnam. 
I mean, I, I cannot imagine, you know, what they went through over there. I, I just can't, you know, and then to be treated that way, you know, I saw that there was an Air Force colonel who's taking command and she was basically told, I can't remember what her name was. I saw the article the other day. It was on LinkedIn. I saw it too. Yes. And they told her, oh, well, you know, nice girls don't join the military. She's like, what? You know, and she goes, well, then I really did, you know. But, you know, that her was- elementary teacher laughed at her when she said she wanted to join. He's like, no, you can't do that. And she's like, watch me. I still don't, you know, really? I think it was Lieutenant Colonel Barron, if I remember. That was a very interesting article. But well, and I've learned that women, when they take off the uniform, they take on the, whatever their new role is. So like mom, military spouse or executive or whatever their role is, if they're lucky enough to find one and not end up being high statistic of home veteran. But we kind of don't feel like we fit into the veteran community. And so for me, it's like a protection. It was easier for me to be a military spouse than to be a woman veteran. And like, I was going to go to the VFW and I didn't like I didn't need that in my life. And so it's really exciting to see all the different conferences and focus on women veterans, because not only is it cool, I just went to an event last night. There were so many men in the audience at this women's veteran speaking event that I was and the speaker even touched on how men and women have to come together and we can't just do it on our own. But we have to start with women and then bring the men in. And I think that will really change everything. But it's so hard because to go in and she also said you have to have at least 30% of the population to change the mindset. And women, even in the Air Force, are only at 20%. So even if every woman was on the same path and our goal was the same, we wouldn't be able to change the culture without the help of men. An interesting dynamic where it's easier for women to just be like, oh yeah, I did that. I'm not talking about that again. Correct. And like I said, there's a couple of things too, like with Ohio, that's unique. So the director of our veteran services is uh, Director uh, Deborah Ashenhurst, and she also was the first female adjutant general for the National Guard here in Ohio. You know, so she was that, you know, she ended up, you know, retiring out of D.C., out of the Guard Bureau. She has been, I believe she was the president of the Officer Association, too, I think, or she was very involved. But it's just really nice to see, you know, that Ohio has invested in, you know, female veterans and they've they've done that for quite a while. You know, that that's one thing, you know, ever since, you know, well, I want to say when I first got here in 94, one, it was really sad because it was probably a small or medium state then. Uh, the funding was not good. Um, a new regime came in and, you know, and, and they got it all squared away and they worked very hard on readiness. And, you know, when I first got here, this is funny, but I had a World War II steel pot, which I had used in basic training. Okay, I came from North Dakota where they're very vested in their National Guard and they had the best of everything. Yes, we're smaller population-wise, population but they were very well trained. They had great equipment because it's a very patriotic state. And I know that I'm not saying that any other state is, and I don't mean it that way. But at that time, I think it was like 50 to 60% of the people in North Dakota either had been or were associated with the military in some way, shape or form, whether it was themselves or family or whatever. It just, there's a very large Native American population, which I also am, you know, so Natives have a tendency to serve higher than any other ethnic group that there is. And so there's a lot of them there, you know, and 
us, I should say. Um, but it was crazy. So then I ended up coming to Ohio, had that. And then I went to a new unit, which had just opened up to females. It had been a duster battalion, which is a, a track vehicle with like a 50 cal on it, I think. I, I never saw one because it wasn't there when I got there. Well, they switched it over to Hawk missiles, so air defense artillery. And so I switched to that unit. And I went back to refueling and I was in one of the line batteries. So I was the second female in that line battery with this group of people that had never served with females. And I was lucky because I had a good group. Um, it was funny because they had the brand new five ton trucks with the central inflatable tire system, you know, automatic. And I was so excited. And, you know, the, the tire came up to my shoulder, you know, they're just huge vehicles. And I was so tickled to have it. But I'll never forget the first drill when I first got there and they were like, she's a 77 Fox, really? How is she going to inventory her truck? Because, you know, you have to look and you have to inventory everything and there was a bunch of them and they were just kind of sitting there watching, you know, and I knew they thought I was going to ask them for help. Well, I'll be doggone if I was going to ask anybody for help. You know, I grew up, you know, ranching, farming type stuff and I didn't need their help, you know, so I, it took me about an hour and a half. I got my whole vehicle inventoried. And after that, I had no problems in that unit. I was very physically fit when I was younger. Uh, I was a long distance runner. I ran cross country, and, you know, in track, I ran the mile, the two mile, two mile relay, you know, so I could outrun and, I could outrun and out PT the majority of the people in that unit. And it was so funny because you've experienced this. They, they want to beat you and you do not want to get beat by a girl, especially if you're doing your run or if they can do more push-ups or sit-ups. And, you know, I was usually like a 280, you know, uh, you know, anywhere from 250 to 280 out of 300 all the time. You know, the highest I ever got was a 290. So it's kind of funny. And, you know, things have changed a lot, but, you know, that's still something that, it is a culture thing. And, and, you know, we're pretty fortunate here in the United States. And like you, you know, you've been overseas so you see how, you know, women have it pretty darn good in the, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and, do. and if you think you don't, then just go on over to Saudi Arabia where they just got driving privileges last January. Or was it this January? I can't remember. I think it was this January. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we can be whatever we want to be here. And that's one thing that I think people take for granted, which is unfortunate, you know, but it is what it is. Yeah, this isn't really educational and super interesting. And I want to keep going, but we're running out of time. <laughs> so I have one last question. I like to ask everybody, what advice would you give young women who are considering joining the military? I would say go for it. And the biggest thing is study and score well on your ASVAB so you have a choice of what job you want to do. So you're not voluntold or you're not lured in by the promise of a bonus to be a cook like I was. What was I thinking? Do you know what I mean? Like make sure that, you know, that you are, are really setting a goal and going for the job you want. You know, your only limitation is yourself. And now, you know, so thankful, you know, on the army side, you know, and there was an air force lady too, who just went through ranger school, correct? I believe. So, I mean, they can do that now, you know, they couldn't before and you can do whatever you want to do. And, and the sky's the limit. It's not going to be easy because there's still a lot of people out there that don't want that to happen. You know, they had the first female go through the Q course for special forces as well, too. And she made it through the two-week qualification course. I, I have not followed up to see if she actually started the special forces training. I don't remember for the Army. But, you know, it's just amazing to me. And, you know, 
it had a great impact on my life. You know, growing up on the reservation, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get out of there. You know, my dad's white, my mom's, you know, Indian. My dad was a cowboy. I always say they played cowboys and Indians and here we, you know, here we are kind of thing. But, you know, I wanted a better life for myself. You know, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to, you know, make a difference. And, you know, the sky's the limit. You know, my husband, like I said, I retired in 2008. My husband's still in. He'll retire in July of 21. And then our oldest son joined the Air Force. You know, so, you know, our family continues to serve in some way, shape or form. But I really feel like people need to serve their country, whether it's in public service, whether it's in the Peace Corps, you know, VISTA volunteers, you know, the ones that volunteer in the United States, you know, great programs, but you got to give back and, and don't think, you know, and that's for all the youth, you know, don't think that, you know, everything is just supposed to be handed to you. You know, I read an article where some man, young man was saying that college, you know, we should have to pay back their student loans. I'm like, excuse me, you know, yeah, you can march for, for fair treatment and for free money and all that stuff, but we marched so we could go to school. You know, we earned that money. So what's wrong with earning it, you know, and, and just go for it, you know, because you're only stopping yourself. I've been pretty fortunate, to be honest. And, and, you know, and the Army was good to me and my family. And, you know, and we're happy that one joined the military and the other one wants nothing to do with it. And it's perfectly fine. The military is not for everybody, though. So, you know, we, you know, I'm sure you have, you know, sometimes you'll serve with, you know, a very small percentage of people who really don't want to be there and just did it because someone, you know, it was a family historical thing. My history is we go back, you know, as far as the Civil War on my mom's side, on the Native side. You know, I had a great great grandfather who was a cavalry scout in Minnesota during the Indian Wars. You know, so my two aunts that were in the waves during World War II, great grandfather, you know, who was in World War One, who wasn't even a citizen yet, you know, because he was Native American. There's other ways you can serve, but to me, the military is a great way. You know, there's nothing like the camaraderie. I miss that, but I actually now work for DFAS, Defense Finance and Accounting Services. So we have some contact with the military, you know, not as much because we do the finance and accounting, but I feel like I'm still helping because, you know, that organization has sustained my family since we were married and me since 1986. Thank you so much for your time and your story and your history that was hidden away that now we get to hear on the podcast. And I just really, I've learned so much and I really enjoyed hearing your experience. So, and I feel like we could have talked for another hour. So this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for what you do and for telling these stories. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. 